Hey everyone, it's Jenna from the Democracy Works team. If you are a loyal listener of Democracy Works, then you know we have collaborated with several podcasts over the past two years that we've been doing our show. We really see it as an integral part of our public service mission to not only bring you the expertise from Michael and Chris and our our guests and everybody who's involved with Democracy Works, but also to help amplify and and lift up uh, others who are doing really great work in this space around civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. We are going to step up those collaborations even more in 2020 with a brand new podcast network called the Democracy Group. It is a group of eight podcasts that each has a bit of a different take uh, about issues in democracy and how we can all work together to fix them. You'll hear from the Niskanen Center, the German Marshall Fund, Issue One, the McCain Institute, and several really great uh, independently produced podcasts as well. So you can visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows, sign up for our newsletter to receive regular emails with everyone's latest episodes, as well as deep dive playlists on topics like immigration and impeachment that are curated from across our network member shows. In the coming year, we're hoping to do some events and some increased collaboration. So lots of exciting things in store. Uh, heading into an election season, the partisan rhetoric is only going to increase. So we're very excited about the opportunity to pivot away from some of those things and really focus on the underlying issues in democracy, how our government works, how it's not working, how it should work, how we can all be more civically engaged. So again, you can visit democracygroup.org to learn more about the network and our member shows. And we look forward to sharing more with you soon. From the McCourney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Today, guys, we are talking about polarization in Congress, and joining us is Francis Lee, professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton, author of Insecure Majorities, Congress and the Perpetual Campaign, and the forthcoming book, The Limits of Party, Congress and Lawmaking in a Polarized Era. So, you know, this theme of polarization really runs across all of her work when it comes to Congress. Yeah, she's accounting for uh, uh, why Congress is the way it is and why people are so unhappy with it. Yeah, I mean, and polarization is the key defining feature of congressional politics, I mean, of American politics in general. Maybe it's a good idea, Chris, for us to just take a quick step back and talk about what polarization refers to. Sure. And, and pick it up from there because she's then her work uh, really gets into how polarization affects the operations of Congress. OK, so when we talk about polarization, you know, we're, we're talking about the movement to ideological poles of uh, each party. But what's sometimes not fully understood by the public, I think, is that polarization can refer to elites and it can refer to the mass public. So what's the difference? Though? Well, uh, polarization among elites, mostly among congressional representatives, has been going on pretty steadily since the mid-1960s. And it's this, well, one way of thinking about it is it's this, uh, the middle 
has gone away in Congress. Right. There's the, the most conservative Democrat now in both the House and the Senate is more liberal than the most liberal Republican. As but they both become more ideological Well, the gap, the consistent. thing about polarization, yes, they've both become more mm-hmm. ideologically consistent. And the thing about polarization is the gap between mm-hmm, them has mm-hmm, grown. Mm-hmm. It's just that the gap has really grown as the Republicans have moved more, t- more to the right. Could be changing. Uh, but that's that's where it's kind of been. So, but okay, go ahead. But just let me add one thing: that polarization, though, also refers to the public, mm-hmm. and this is a somewhat different phenomenon. It's kind of dragged behind elite polarization, and on many kinds of issue positions, you actually still don't really see the mass polarization in the same way that you see it at the elite level. Well, so that's what I was going to say. I think when when people hear the word polarization, um, they don't think about ideology per se. What they think about is this kind of uh, undercurrent of animosity, Tribalism. right? I mean, your argument was that the elite um, polarization took place first, yeah, and that probably is true. However, now it seems to me like... They send the cues. Yeah, the, the populace is the one that's driving the uh, the further polarization of the parties because they're the ones who are the activists, they're the ones who are spending the money, they're the ones who are... And then the parties deliver right. by... By supporting policies. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, the, the thing that, that Francis talks about is maybe a threat to tie this all together is that Congress has, you know, for, for a long time, Congress is basically controlled by the Democrats, right? They had control of, you know, both both the House and the Senate. For about a generation so, you know, after World War II, right? Since... I actually know that's true, not true, but before, like, when Roosevelt uh, beat Hoover, yeah, right. thirty-two. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When. The whole post-New Deal period. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now it's you know back and forth and back and forth between uh, Democrats and and Republicans every two years, and so there's almost an incentive for for parties for lawmakers to amp up this sense of of polarization because it keeps people coming back to the polls. Yeah, that's well put, and I think it's one of the really neat insights of uh, Francis's work. Mm-hmm. Actually, is that. You know, how are politics different when each party see themselves as fully competitive for the next election? If on the one hand, you know, one thing it does is it reduces the incentive to work together because you don't want to give the other side a win, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which further drives the parties apart and there's nobody really in the middle. No, I think, you know, her argument is basically that... um Politicians, like everybody else, respond to incentives, and the incentives right now push you to uh, away from cooperation, even though uh, you still require cooperation to get anything done. But the idea that you yes. can um, that you are going to gain support from your party through cooperation is is just receding farther and farther away. Well, it would be interesting to hear from Francis because I, I actually think that what some of, as I understand some of her work, it's actually arguing that, you know, really the question is, can Congress still get things done? Right. And so that's the ultimate measure. But, you know, the, the fact is that the legitimacy of Congress has really dropped. Trust in Congress has really mm-hmm. dropped. Mm-hmm. I mean, trust in anything having to do, in all American political institutions well, has really yeah. dropped. Uh, but, you know, Congress is the army, way down there. Or the there. military. That's about the only thing that's not true. And yeah, but as it becomes more politicized, yeah, right, we'll right, see. Right, right. Um, but, I, you know, I do want to just say um, quickly that it does seem to me that that there's something interesting about this whole, you know, polarization in that um, it would not be as powerful if the parties weren't so even. <laughs> if, the, if there wasn't such a parity and so there wasn't such an opportunity, such an 
an ongoing opportunity for the other party to take over. So yeah, I do think that this this issue of, of, of parity is really at the core of what we're talking about. Yeah, so let's uh, hear more about that and polarization in Congress from Francis Lee. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Francis Lee. Francis, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk all about Congress today. And, uh, you know, I think it's often framed in, in the media or we, we might think about it as this kind of constant battle, right? Every two years we're talking about which party is going to keep control or winning back one chamber or another. And before we get to all that, I thought it might be good to, to start with, with a little bit of history. Things have not always been this way. So can you talk a little bit about how we got to this, this place of a, a constant battle back and forth? So we are in a remarkably competitive period in terms of our two-party politics. Now, we've been in this era for a long time. So that people have sort of come to take it for granted that this is how uh, congressional elections work, that, you know, the majority is in play every uh, every uh, two years in the House uh, and potentially in the Senate. And yet on the uh, uh, if you reflect back on uh, congressional history, you'll see that that has that this is not normal. That uh, the, the Democrats were the majority party in Congress for roughly 50 years in the 20th century between the the Great Depression and uh, 1994 in the House of Representatives, 1980 in the the Senate. If you look back before the Great Depression, the Republican Party was the dominant party in national politics and maintained control most of the time after the Civil War up through the Great Depression. So this period where the majority is constantly in play and where we continually speculate about whether the party in power will be able to retain power after the next elections – where all congressional races are evaluated not just in terms of the candidates that are presented to the voters in that state or district, but for what are the consequences for for control of the institution nationally. And so you, you mentioned 1980 and uh, 1994 as two kind of watershed years. What changed during those two years? Well, that was the end of the seemingly permanent Democratic majority, that in 1980... Democrats lost control of the Senate. This was the Reagan revolution. It was a total surprise at the time. There was not speculation in the lead up to the 1980 elections that Republicans might take the Senate majority. Um, But when the votes were counted, they did. And the same was true in 1994. uh, It was not expected for that Republicans would win in 1994, would win control of the House of Representatives. There was a great deal of complacency about Democrats' retaining control, as you might expect, considering that it had been a generation, uh, more than a generation of, of Democrats being in power. And so, but since that time, margins of control in both House and Senate have been close. And there's been speculation about the, a change of majority control most, in most election years, one institution or another, not, not every institution every two years, but um, the party out of power has reasonable expectation of getting back into power in the near term. Uh, in in the era ever since 1980 in the Senate and 1994 in the House. Can you just help us for those of us that n- might need a, a Civics 101 refresher? What's the what the kind of uh, role? What roles do the 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 majority and the, the minority uh, occupy? It, it, it's interesting to get that question because the American system fragments power to such an extent that there is always ambiguity about who really is in power. 
having presidential elections occur separately from congressional elections means that we regularly have an outcome where you have one party in control of the executive branch and the other party in control of Congress. Cong- a party may not have full control of Congress, may, may have a, a majority in one chamber but not a majority in the other. And then, of course, there's always the question of the Senate, where a simple majority is not enough to govern in the Senate. So one might even ask, does any party ever really have control of American government? And it's a fair question, and the answer is that not, not very often. Right, and you, you mentioned this term speculating a couple of times, and it's, I, I'm wondering if this is like a chicken and the egg. I don't, I don't know maybe what the, the right metaphor is, but it's like the more speculation that happens, do, does that lead to, to more competition, or does this, is this just kind of like a vicious cycle that feeds on each other? Well, it's, it's political actors looking to the future and what is likely going to happen that shapes their behavior. So um, fundraising, your ability to get par- a party's donors to pony up ever-increasing amounts of money, depends on you being able to tell them that you have a shot of winning. And so that that shapes donors' behavior. Can you get good candidates to run? Well, that depends on their chance of winning. Um, the formation of all these national groups that exist to move money around and direct them to the competitive districts and states, those didn't exist before majority control was in play. In terms of behavior inside the institution, bargaining, uh, negotiation, the party out of power, if it believes that it will be in a better position in a short time frame, the next two years or less, then why would it strike a deal now? Mm-hmm. So it makes uh, negotiation more challenging. And there's a lot more posturing before external constituencies uh, attempting to drive on favorable message in the news media in an environment where you think that message could be critical to who has power. So we clearly, as far as as, as politics goes, we, we have this this back and forth, all this this speculating, this this kind of you know battle back and forth for control. But how does that actually translate to lawmaking and, and whether whether or not Congress is you know, we, we hear a lot about this it's it's very rare that there's bipartisan action. We can think about, you know, John McCain famously walking across the chamber when Republicans were, were trying to uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act. And that was kind of this rare show of, of, of bipartisanship. But I think you argue that bipartisanship when it comes to, to legislating maybe is, is not as rare as the, the media narrative might lead us to believe. Well, it's just about impossible to legislate without bipartisanship. Part of that's a story of narrow majorities. Divided control of House and Senate has become more common. Divided government is the norm since 1980. 75% of the time we have divided government between Congress and the president. So bipartisanship is essential in this environment to, uh, to legislate. There are, uh, there are additional reasons as well which we can, we can uh, explore. But the U.S. system puts a premium on being able to work across party lines. It still happens because there is no alternative. All the budget deals that we've seen in recent uh, years, ever since 2010, all of them have been bipartisan. Uh, So to keep the government open and operational, to do anything requires bipartisanship. So it's hard to do. These are tough negotiations. The news media tend to focus more on the conflict. And so when things do get worked out in a bipartisan way, 
tends not to get as much attention. And so I, 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 there's, a, there's a distorting lens through which the public sees national politics. Yes, the conflict is tough, but they do get to a resolution. I mean, many issues are not dealt with. It's, it, it, it's you know, climate change or fiscal balance. These are very challenging issues to address. But when government action occurs, which it does, it's bipartisan. It's rarely not bipartisan. So the Affordable Care Act or the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, those are extremely rare breakthroughs where one party basically gets what it wants in policy terms despite the opposition of the opposing party. But those are just rare moments, and they're not typical of our contemporary politics. I think people have gotten the impression from the extent of partisan conflict that occurs in Congress that it's routinely the case that the majority party just rolls over on the minority and enacts its policy preferences despite the minority's opposition. That just doesn't happen very often in American politics. Right. Well, it's also, too, I think, maybe in in the party's interest to help perpetuate some of these these narratives because it it makes them look stronger come election time or helps them have a a better case to sell to, to potential donors, things like that? Party messaging does not go out in public and say, look at all these great deals that we've cut with the opposing party that, you know, we sat down and worked out things on a reasonable basis. And here's what we produced working cooperatively together. That is not how party messaging plays out. The the party not in power wants to say that the party in power is doing a bad job. How can it say that if it's in if it's taking credit for accomplishments that were bipartisan? So it ha- it has to say you know what the majority wants to do is bad and you know their their agenda is misguided or wrong. Um, so they're continually criticizing one another. Party messaging is disproportionately negative. I I think that there's also a recognition on the part of um, of communicators you know who work for the parties that voters are pretty cynical about national politics. And so going out and saying how great you are, your side is, is doesn't get as receptive a message uh, or a response from an audience. But if you go out and you're criticizing the other side for how wrong and misguided um, that they are, that is more likely to resonate. And so there's a lot of negativity in party messaging. And that is driven in great part by this highly competitive, closely contested environment. But the reality is that, that there's just very little legislating that looks like that. Right. And, and there's also a, simply more people kind of creating these communications messages now than there were, you know, prior to, to 94, prior to 80. Certainly, I think I, I remember reading in your work that there are more more communication staffers on the Hill now than there are like legislative or, or policy staffers? They, it, there's been more a faster rate of growth um, of co- communication staffers than um, of policy staff. And that's most pronounced around the party leaders. That um, the, the party leaders, a key part of party leaders' job is to shape the narrative around the party, to promote it, to harm the opposition, to drive a story that's favorable to its candidates. And, uh, and so they've staffed up. There's sort of been an arms race between the parties. The party not in power tends to be the side that's building up its messaging capabilities. But then when it comes into power, it doesn't, like, lay all those people off. The other side instead tries to 
increase its capabilities. And so over time, you've seen this ratcheting up of people who work on communications on Capitol Hill and whose job it is every day to come in and think about partisan attacks. And then you wonder why uh, the environment in Capitol Hill is so toxic. Right. There was there's a quote in your book, this whole place is run by tweeting. Someone I think told you in an interview. Yes. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon, no. for sure. Um, so thinking about actual, you know, legislation being passed, how does the number of, of, of bills and things passing through the chambers now compare to this pre-94, pre-1980 time frame? The number of bills has come down. So the number of individual laws is less um, than it um, than it was before this highly partisan, um, closely contested era got underway. But the bills that pass these days are much longer. So they're, they're more omnibus in character. So that if we look at the, the, the total number of legislative pages enacted in a Congress, it's not less than it was in the 1980s. So what you tend to see are relatively few bills going through navigating this grueling process, but they pack a lot into them. Nice example of this was the omnibus, uh, the omnibus spending bills that cleared right at the end um, of uh, 2019. They, there were a lot of major policy changes in, uh, included in that, and it wasn't just keeping the government open. That tended to be the headline, oh, we won't have a government shutdown this time. But there was a lot of policy in there as well. Things like raising the uh, age at which people can purchase tobacco to 21. That was part of that legislation. There was also a big change in a federal tax policy governing uh, IRAs and other pensions. Very little media attention uh, in, uh, in the individual components of that, of that legislation. Bipartisan, grouped together with a whole lot else so that the main story was just, well, you know, the government's not going to shut down. So... This is not good for Congress's uh, reputation, public image. Congress looks ineffective. It looks like it's continually mired in partisan gridlock. And these these few breakthroughs that happen pack a lot in so that there's there isn't enough effort to break it down and see, you know, what what all happened in policy terms. You know, there will be a a story. It maybe makes the front pages, but then there's not it's not a sustained story, you know, sustained conflict is a sustained media narrative. And so then when people reflect back on what they know about how Congress works or how our national government works, they mainly remember conflict because that is the day-to-day story. But it's not it's not an accurate impression of what actually happens in policy terms. Policy breakthroughs do occur even in the midst of these uh, t- you know, tough, uh, tough partisan times. Um, but... Um, we don't get enough attention uh, paid to to policy. News media tend to focus on politics, not policy. Sure, uh, but you know, it seems like every year or so there there will be a new study c- coming out from Pew or, or or some other organization about trust in government, and, and as you suggest, it just keeps going down and down and down. And it, it, is that an incentive for things? Things to change. Do do the the people you you talked with for your your book, for example, the you know staffers and even you know members of, of Congress themselves. How do they view the kind of overall trust in government versus what they see as more like party oriented incentives or or that kind of power struggle? They are cognizant of the low level of trust in Congress. You know, I've gone to a lot of events on Capitol Hill where those data are referenced, so there is an awareness. 
it has provoked some reform efforts. Um, like right now, there is a select committee on the modernization of Congress, which you know sees its mission as to to take action to improve public. Uh, trust in uh, the public's trust in Congress to make it a, a safer repository for the public's trust. Uh, but these incentives, these institution-wide incentives are not as powerful as the incentives to gain or maintain majority control. So the, the, the second set of imperatives are more driving of behavior. They're more important to party leaders, to donors, um, uh, that, that they're, they're more important drivers of behavior across all dimensions of what legislators need to do, both legislatively and politically. So the, po- the power struggle takes precedence over th- these institutional considerations. But the in- institutional considerations are something they care about. Yeah, the the uh, committee on on modernizing Congress also not get, not getting a lot of of, of media attention yeah. um, for sure. But so what what if anything do you think would would need to happen for for that paradigm to shift? Well, um, the implications of the analysis in my book is that you'd have to have one party win firm grip on power, so that the other party doesn't see an immediate path back in. That would uh, reduce incentives for constantly messaging and uh, you know seeking a political angle to impeach the performance of the party in power. It would it would reduce the focus on partisan politics if key questions about which party the public trusted with power were sort of settled. But there's no sign of that happening. So it really boils back down to the public's views of the parties, and neither party in American politics is a majority party. They're both minority parties, and when one party wins power, it tends to generate a backlash against that party in power um, because the public simply doesn't trust either party with power. I was thinking about the the Green New Deal, for example. You know, is is there are other benefits though, right, to, to putting these types of things forward, even though you know the the folks who introduced that probably knew it wasn't going to pass, but there there are other kind of more partisan benefits, though, to, to, to introducing those messages and putting those those ideas forward, right? Right. It excites your base. It helps with fundraising. That you g- give people a reason to support you with these, mes- with these messaging votes. And if they draw clear lines between the parties, then that gives people a reason to support your party as opposed to the other party. So th- there, there's good political reason why members devote so much time to crafting legislation that they know is not actually going to you know, become law, but that it will just be a vehicle for this kind of shadow boxing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've, we've been talking about the kind of increased animosity between the parties and they're, they're both trying to, to carve out their, their unique messages to, to be persuasive to the, who they feel are their, their potential voters and, and things like that. But has that, has that trickled down to the, the relationships between the, the legislators themselves? I mean, we, we hear sometimes about, oh, you know, people from across the aisle used to have dinner together and, and do all these kind of social activities, but that maybe doesn't happen as much anymore. So how, how has the kind of increased partisan fight, for lack, lack of a better term, uh, how does that impact how, how legislators interact with each other? That's a hard question to answer because how members want to be seen may or may not reflect what they really think. 
or what the interactions are really like. I would say what I hear from um, members and former members is a complaint about not being able to get to know people from across the aisle. They don't have time. They're not in Washington very much, and when they're there, they um, have to meet with constituents, or then there's the meetings with, uh, within their party caucuses, and there's fundraising. And so there's just not that much chance to get to know. So I hear them be sort of bemoaning how hard it is to build relationships across the aisle rather than, oh, well, we don't want to know those people anyway. I don't, we don't hear them saying that. I have heard former members complain about how hard it is to be seen as friendly to the other side. To go to dinner is something that can get you in political trouble. Somebody takes a picture tweets about it, your constituents see you shaking hands or being friendly on C-SPAN, and it gets, it gets negative feedback uh, uh, in terms of calls coming into the office. So I think they feel constrained by their supporters in the electorate to seem more hostile maybe than they actually feel. Hmm, that's interesting. And, and how does that carry over or, or how do, do individual members of Congress navigate being true and, you know, kind of trying to act in the best interests of, of their individual districts or constituents versus holding true to, to what the party goals and, and ideals are. These are hard balances to strike. That The legislative process is grueling, and in order to get anything done, lots of compromises have to be made. Your base is not going to be pleased with what you're able to deliver. Even with unified government, they're disappointed. Democratic activists were very unhappy with the Affordable Care Act. They saw it as a sellout to pharmaceutical interests. That was the best that <laughs> Democrats could do. Um, and yet, uh, and yet th- their base was disappointed. And that was with unified government. Most of the time you need to manage the disappointment of your supporters. You need to be able to hold on to their trust and also manage their disappointment. This is very politically challenging. We've kind of touched on this here here and there um, a little bit, but I know you don't you don't have a crystal ball, but where do you where do you see these trend lines going? I mean, can it just continue on as as things are getting more and more and more polarized and partisan, or is there going to be or does there have to be a breaking point come along somewhere? I don't see a break point. I see uh, you know continuing partisan conflict, harsh messaging directed at the opposing party. Voters on the receiving end of such messaging year after year, feeling more fear and distaste and animus towards the opposing party. I mean, if you feed the electorate a constant diet of hard, harsh partisan rhetoric, what's their, going, what's their response going to be? They're going to see the other side as dangerous. And I, I see all trends as many is reinforcing our current predicament rather than breaking free of it. I mean, what it would take would be a decisive election, but we're not getting that. We're getting close elections, and parties that win power barely hold it. When I, when I say win power in that case, I mean get a majority in the House or the Senate. Um, whether that's sufficient for governing is another question, but just to get a majority, they can't hold it because there isn't that, that trust. What would produce that? I mean, historically speaking, a discrediting of a party in power. So the Great Depression discredited the party that was in power at the time. Events, war, and economic crisis 
can unsettle our balanced party politics. But in the absence of something like that, I would expect this just to continue. And certainly, as we look to 2020, there seems to be no no change in the landscape. Can individual voters make make an impact here? Or is this all just kind of beyond their control because there's this big party media machine that just kind of keeps perpetually going forward and forward? The voters do, the voter preferences do make a difference. Now, the individual voter, that's, that, that's a high bar. Mm-hmm. But what voters want does restrict what p- parties do. Republicans struggled to repeal the Affordable Care Act because it was not popular. Um, Republican states have expanded Medicaid in the wake of the creation of um, the Affordable Care Act, even though their voters never approved of Obama, the policy was popular. And so you've seen a steady growth in the number of states that have done this. So there's a responsiveness of both parties to what voters want. It's hard for them to buck what voters want, to do what the opposite of what voters want. So there... So voter preferences matter. Voter preferences are not going to make for politics that is kumbaya or devoid of conflict. Politics is about conflict. It's distasteful for many people, and it puts a lot of people off politics. They don't, they, they don't want to engage with it. But it's in the nature of it. I think, you know, this is one thing civic education could do a better job of, of educating people mm-hmm. that, po- that, that politics is about conflict and democracy is not pretty. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, we might have to pick that up in, a, in another episode, Francis. Thank you for the, the suggestion. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. But yeah, so this is this has been really interesting. Uh, I, I know I, I learned a lot from from your work. So thank you for sharing with sharing it with us. And thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. So that was great. Thank you, Jenna. One thing, Michael, that I thought was really interesting is this idea that, that she, this is just quoting from her, uh, neither party in American politics is a majority party. They're both minority parties. And so I think that's an interesting kind of frame on why people are so frustrated uh, in American politics right now. I totally agree with you that the, the, the ability of one party to control all chambers, all levers of government are increasingly difficult, but it happens. I mean, Obama had it. What I do think that you're, you're more likely to see is a kind of pattern that we, we have seen the last couple presidents, which is where for the first two years of the term, we might expect a, a president's party to hold on to the full, to, the, to both the presidency mm-hmm. and Congress. Mm-hmm. But that once that midterm election comes up and the hits that they always take in midterm elections, they're always going to lose it. At least that seems to be the pattern and one that reasonably predicts forward. Sure, I think that's bit. true. But, but, but I, what I thought I was hearing in her work, though, is that in terms of Congress actually getting things done, irrespective of how the public looks at Congress, then maybe they can still get things done. Well, they have no choice but to get some things done, yeah. right? They have to uh, pass some kind of budget, even if it's only a continuing resolution. And so what ends up happening is you get... A, a bunch of bills that people, I mean, there's there's more horse trading in the one, the few bills that have to get passed. Yeah, because stuff is passed in these omnibus bills where everything's tossed in together. But, you know, I think it's, 
I think more gets done in a legislative session than we realize these days. And part of it is because there's so much other stuff going on that it gets no attention at all. Yeah, that's true. And it's there much certainly is a to figure out who gets the credit for it. Well, and there's a there's a clearly a, a narrative that, you know, Congress is is uh, sclerotic and, and hogtied and gridlocked and all that. And populist candidates have it, you know, to their advantage to knock down American institutions as much as they can, because it's this distrust of institutions that helps to give them some of their power. So even though things are getting done, the public doesn't necessarily see it as they're getting done, and they don't know who to credit for it, and so it gets a sense of this gridlock. And I do think that both parties get traction running on the idea that Congress is a mess. And so you, I need you, uh, me, Mr. Politician, I need your help and your money in order to clean up this mess and make it more efficient. Yeah, I think there's something else going on, too, and that is that there are a lot of measures that are supported by the public at large, which never get through Congress. And I, I suspect that gives people the sense of there being gridlock when really it's about the power of minorities within the Senate, it's or within the Congress about the way that American politics are designed to make it difficult to get anything done. And so there are a variety of issues that have just been on the agenda for year after year after year. And I think it adds to the sense of gridlock. Stuff about guns supported well, by 80% yeah. of the public. Climate change issues that have been of concern to so many people in the public. Immigration, you know, which mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. immigration reform collapsed during the Obama administration, hasn't really been able to be revisited. You know, on the Republican side, you see these constant efforts of the symbolic messaging to get rid of uh, Obamacare, yeah, 70 right? votes or But then when they yeah. actually had the chance to do it, they didn't have any idea what to do. The incentives are what the incentives are. Co politicians are not profiles in courage, and, and they're not going to do something that jeopardizes their seat. And so... The, the incentives are just pushing people farther away, and, and it's not likely that that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, within Congress. I mean, I don't see anything of the sort of forces behind polarization that are likely to change in the near future. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also why I think, you know, sometimes, oh, if members of Congress just talk to one another more, if they had drinks together, if they had, yeah, that might all be true. But first of all, it's increasingly less likely because they're more likely to be very different mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of who they are. And a lot of this is structural. It doesn't really matter who they are. Well, she said, I've heard former members complain about how hard it is to be seen as friendly to the other side, to go to dinner with some someone that can get you into political trouble. Yeah, That's where we we are. Yep. And, and politicians aren't stupid. They're going to uh, behave in accordance with their self-interest. And so they have to compromise in order to get anything done, but they have to, they cannot look like they're compromising. And that puts them in an incredibly difficult position. And, and again, there's no likelihood in the short term that this is going to change. And so, you know, that's where we are. Right. Because one of, one of the arguments, something I take out of her argument is that really you need one party to become dominant again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, to reset as, things. Right. Exactly. Reset. That's a good way to yeah, frame it. Yeah. To, re, mm -hmm. to reset things. And, yeah. and the prospects of I'm not sure how that. many supporters of the other party would agree with of that. Course, but, of course. Of yeah, course. And that's right. the problem. The other, only other one thing I want to say is I think the public is inclined to just wag their finger at the, at the Congress. But the fact is... The public is the one who's setting these ex expectations. They're the one who are driving these incentives. So if you really want to change this, I think this is actually something Charlie Dent said when he was here. If you really want to change Congress, you have to, ch you have to vote for people who are moderates. You have to vote for people who are open to compromise. You have to 
vote for people who are going to respect the other side. And the prospects of that are slim, but until that happens, it's just not realistic or fair to be wagging your finger at Congress. That's all I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So um, that is a enough of that sermon. And um, and uh, thanks to Francis Lee for a terrific uh, visit and um, and chat with Jenna. And uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Burton. It's been Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.